everyone. Welcome to the CSBI podcast. I'm here today with uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Uh, he's the author of two books, uh, Everybody Lies and Don't Trust Your Gut, which is the one that just was just recently released. Uh, Seth, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Richard? I'm doing great. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, um, who you are, where you come from, and you know how you got to where you, where, where you are today? So I've taken a very winding path uh, to my current life, uh, largely trusting my gut, which is kind of ironic, uh, given the <laughs> title of my new book. Uh, but I, where I'm from, I'm from New Jersey, uh, suburbs, New York City, uh, pretty standard uh, 1990s upbringing. And I studied philosophy in college. Uh, and then I switched to economics PhD, largely because I really liked the book Freakonomics. And I thought this is like really, really cool. And then I got to my economics PhD program and uh, I was a little bit lost because like, I'm not really into standard economics. So inflation, interest rates, like when people start talking about these things, I just started zoning out. Uh, yeah. Like my girlfriend's been like, uh, we've been together almost two years. And she said, Seth, you know, we've been together almost two years. I thought I was getting a PhD in economics. We're, get, we're There's so much interesting stuff going on in the economy. Like we're li living for one of the most interesting periods in the economic history. And you've taught me zero things about the economy. <laughs> never bring it up. <laughs> Not, no opinions, no insights, no nothing. Uh, so I was basically a PhD in economics with, and I mean, you can see that in reading my books, like they really don't, don't get, don't touch much on the economy. Uh, and so I was doing a PhD in economics without much interest in e economics. And I was really saved by, I found out this tool, Google Trends, uh, which now, uh, when I started talking about Google Trends, nobody had heard of it. Uh, you go to a talk, you'd be like, Google Trends, like, what's that? Uh, but so I started this in 2000, I guess, 11. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is the coolest tool I've ever seen. In part, because growing up, when you're trained in economics, you learn that a lot of the traditional data sets are way worse than we were told. You got to learn how the sausage is made. And you're just like, well, okay, that's a lot worse than I thought it was. So when people start pointing these obvious limitations of Google Trends, I'm like, yeah, there are obvious limitations. There are also obvious limitations to the general social survey and any other data set you could imagine. Uh, so I, I, I was like, this is going to you know, change everything. And uh, so I wrote this paper on... And my original thought, uh, you know, I guess insight, though I'm, I'm not the only one who had this, but it was still pretty uh, big insight at that time, was that Google would deal with social desirability bias. So that's where people are really honest. Uh, so if you ask people in a survey these questions, you know, are you racist? Are you gay? Uh, what type of porn do you watch? Uh, people aren't going to answer those questions honestly, but they're going to be much more honest on Google and other sources, you know, modern sources of data. So my first, so my first study was just racism in the United States. Uh, I was shocked by the degree of which explicit racism that still exists in the United States, measured by things that I think we all would agree are racist things like people searching N word jokes. Yeah. Uh, Actually, it's, it's funny when I read that because I, uh, I grew up, I think at the same time as you, how old are you? Uh, 39. Okay, so I'm uh, I'm just a few years younger than you. Yeah. Uh, so we grew up around the same time, and I grew up in a like a working class suburb of South Side of Chicago, and I wasn't surprised by that. Yeah, like, people use the N word and make jokes like that. Like that was just not surprising to me at all. So I just found it sort of sociologically interesting that that, it, that well, surprised that's, me so much. I've been hammered. So I write in these op eds for the New York Times, uh, some, uh, pretty occasionally, 
Uh, and I've been hammered sometimes by being like an idiot for not knowing something. And that's kind of my point is that none of us know exactly how the world works. So we right. all have our biases based on where we come from. So exactly. You know, I didn't, yeah, I wasn't, I was surprised. <laughs> some, of the, I, some of the surprises probably do have to do with a sheltered upbringing, but also just a different upbringing. You know, I was surprised recently. I talked about, and don't trust your gut. Uh, the, when they, this paper capitalist 21st century, where they say typical rich American is the owner of a regional business, such as a beverage distributor or auto dealer. And I said, that shocked me. And everyone's like, how do you not know that you're an idiot? And like, you know, New York, again, it's always Harvard PhD is an idiot, doesn't know this. And I'm like, that's exactly my point. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, Alpine, New Jersey. Uh, so they also started attacking me that you grew up rich because I grew up in Alpine, New Jersey, which is true. Alpine, New Jersey is one of the single richest zip codes in the United States, guilty as charged. My dad was a journalism professor. My mom was a writer. Uh, we were, we lived in what we called the ghetto of Alpine, uh, which was like middle-class to upper middle-class, but much more, uh, but, but there were tons of rich people in my town because the richest zip code in the United States and all the rich people in my town were, uh, like entertainers, uh, rap stars, basketball players, uh, actors, Eddie Murphy lived in my town. Uh, for, for a while, Chris Rock now has moved into so it sounds, it sounds like the rich people were black in your area and the poor people were Jewish. Is that, is that right? There just weren't that many Jews, Jewish people. Uh, but uh, <laughs> this sounds like we could describe it. Yeah, there, there was a little bit. Not there very were, representative of the there, country. There was, yeah. there, that is kind of an interesting twist. Uh, <laughs> it was more that it was an interesting period because it was changing from old wasp money to young black money as I was growing up, uh, which was a really fun transformation because, uh, like, I think Ice T moved to Alpine and he threw like this huge block party. Uh, this was after I'd already gone to college. My brother said it was like the coolest thing ever. And, but like all the old wasp money was like, what the hell's going on to Al going on with Alpine? Uh, but so, so everyone's hammering me. How do you not know this? And I'm like, I guarantee you that you have blind spots and we all have blind spots and data, you know, helps correct some of our, uh, Blind spots. And then the funny thing is that people are attacking me, which I spent way too much time defending myself or getting worked up about this. Cause like, whatever the internet's the internet. Uh, you just gotta, you know, develop thicker skin than I tend to have. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm like going deep into these people attacking me and they're like, and he's a rich kid. Cause my dad has a Wikipedia page as a journalism professor. And I'm like, you think I don't know about what makes people money in the United States? I guarantee you a journalism professor at NYU is not rich. <laughs> Just because he has a Wikipedia page. I'm like, no, you need to learn the tax data and learn who's, ri who's rich. Uh, so don't, don't tell me that I'm the only one who doesn't know uh, wealth in the United States. But then, so I, uh, I wrote this Obama paper. I tried to get a job with it, and it was a bloodbath. I couldn't get an academic job. Uh, people just hated it. Some people loved the paper. Some people just hated the paper. It was considered like shocking because uh, it's just like it was a weird paper for an economist. It had all this dirty language because you know, I was describing nasty searches. And I, I was also making my point about Google searches, how powerful they are. And I, have, I had a chart, like all the searches people make. I'm like, they make searches for porn and sex and Viagra. And that's just not the, the type of thing you see in an economics paper. Uh, so I got hammered on the uh, job market and then, but I did get a job at Google, which was a great job. And then it turned into a book where I just wrote about everything. 
then I just let, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to get an acad- economics job anyway. So now I'm really going to dig deep into the sex and porn and all the other things that I really care, that I really find interesting. Uh, and the book was Everybody Lies and uh, it did well. And then that led to consulting opportunities, uh, a keynote speaker job, which is the best job uh, that I, I, that I, that I've ever found, but it died during COVID, but uh, it was for a while. There was a couple of years where I was, making much of my living, just flying to luxurious places and giving very short lectures, <laughs> which I highly recommend if anybody can pull it off. Uh, but that's kind of died. And now I do, again, a lot of consulting. Uh, and then Don't Trust Your Gut uh, was, is it my new book where it's uh, self, a self-help book. Uh, you know, we can talk more about and yeah, I should probably let you talk. Uh, there's a lot. Sure. Oh no, sure. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I yeah, I like the I like the personal touch. I mean, you do get that from your books. I mean, there's a lot of I was thinking like this because of this, and I was growing up. I mean, I, I, I related to the part about you wanting to be like an athlete growing up and just realizing <laughs> you didn't have it. I mean, my you know my heart was you know I did my, my just reminded me of my own childhood. So I think we were oh, yeah. similar in that way. And you know, I was also I was also. Sp- Sports, you know, obsessed with sports as a kid. I mean, we, you know, I was uh, into basketball. I love the, I love the sports data. I mean, the the extent to which. So I mean, we could just go topic by topic, and we could start with sports. I guess and get to the then get to the heavier stuff. Um, the uh, the you know the, the just the the degree to which you know you have this uh, this twi- this twin methodology. This is your methodology, right? You need to for for figuring out um, which sports have the most. Uh, well, the uh, twin uh, methodology is a famous. Twin methodology is a famous oh, yeah, method. Of course, of course, but for, for sports. Yeah, but nobody had done this athletes. for sports, yeah. So I'm like, you could actually, it actually, the reason I thought of this was, so, so to clarify people, to see how genetic something is, you compare identical twins to either fraternal twins or same-sex siblings, uh, because same-sex siblings, they also share the same, uh, you know, background, environment, uh, parents, but they only have 50% genetics on average, whereas identical right. twins have hundred percent genetics. So if something's really genetic, it's going to be dominated by identical twins. And this is something I kind of, I kind of started noticing basketball just before I even did this study. I'm like, basketball is so filled with identical twins. So I went to Stanford's undergrad, a huge Stanford basketball fan. We always suck for like five to 10 years. And then a new pair of seven foot identical twins comes and saves our program. And then we're like making the final four, we're crushing it. So it was the Collins twins first, and then it was the Lopez twins. And uh, and if you actually look at the NBA, there have been 10 pairs of twins, uh, probably all of them identical, at least nine of them identical. There's conflicting information on one pair Which, of twins. which pair is that? Uh, I think it's Steven and Joey Graham was the conflict. There was, there was conflicting on them, and there was conflicting one on Carl and uh, Carl Thomas. And Carl and Charles Thomas, but I reached out. Charles Thomas is now a coach and I just found him on LinkedIn. I'm like, are you guys, are you identical or fraternal twins? He told me they were identical. So I was able to uh, do my investigative report to (laughs) uh, reconcile that uh, conflicting information. But uh, I, uh, yeah, uh, I think Joey and Stephen Graham, if you look at them are probably identical as well. Uh, They seem pretty similar. They seem, they look pretty similar to me, (laughs) Uh, but it's just if you do the data, so then I built a model. You can actually build a model. Uh, basically, you have normal distributions of uh, basketball ability, uh, environment, and random stuff. And then you kind of say, you just plug, you, you plug the model in, into, and you, you, you plug a model and see how could you get this many identical twins uh, in basketball. 
And it's clear that basketball is just off the chart genetic. I think I say 0.75. I think it's even higher, more 0.8, 0.85, just insanely genetic, which makes sense because height is one of the most genetic traits we have about 0.8. One of the most remarkable, I mean, the numbers from either of your books was like you started like 5'11 or six feet and every inch doubles your chance. That's incredible. Doubles your chance up to like seven feet where it becomes like a one in five chance or something. One in seven, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books says that uh, like basketball, you just need to be tall enough, uh, and the best basketball player of all time is uh, Michael Jordan. I guess about six 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 seven. The ninety nine point nine nine percentile of yeah, it's right, ninety nine point nine percentile. And the whole point is, yeah, he was the best basketball player of all time, but there are way more six six people than seven two people. So it doesn't. So when you actually look at the entire height distribution, it it doubles. You know, just about every. It's it's linear as far as we can go. Once you get to seven one, seven two, seven three, it starts. So you're, jumping you're around. like Manute Bowl. How many people are as tall as Manute Bowl in the world? Probably is yeah, not the only well, one. Yeah, it, I, I, my guess is at some point it turn it changes because like yeah, there's some above. It's used to, usually a thyroid disorder that's led yeah. to it, which probably would make you a worse athlete. Uh, but so there may be a point at which, like I I, I doubt uh, you know I doubt people over. Uh, seven eight or so, whatever. Yeah. Well, did you hear about that guy who was supposedly from North Korea, who was supposedly like seven eleven or something, and just never left North Korea? And they got a picture of him no, at like Kim Jong Il's funeral. Did, did you ever see this story? No, I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> okay, I might be remembering this incorrectly, but they, that, they, it was something like that. But yeah, he was in North Korea, so obviously never got to play against anyone yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's interesting because actually that section. The, so the book "Don't Trust Your Guts" about how you can use data to make better life decisions. I wanted to get to a point where I'm, could you just know your genetic capabilities? Uh, Robert Plowman has this great book blueprint and he says, everyone should go with your genetic flow uh, and kind of figure out, okay, I'm good at this or I'm you know, not, not good at this. And then you don't waste your time. Uh, I, I talked to some companies, there's a company in Singapore that does it, but I was just so convinced that it was total bullshit uh, the, the data is just not there at this point. They're, yeah, they're trying to tell that. you, they're yeah. trying to tell you, you know, you can be a great violinist or, and there's a huge market for this because parents just eat it up. So like they get a report and, you know, you're an, 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 you have a genetics for violin and C genetics for clarinet, but it's just such garbage. Uh, like, I, I think we could get to that point, but we're very far from that point. Now you could do it with uh, basketball uh, because actually genetics uh, that you can now predict someone's height better with their genes than with knowing their parents. Uh, and there have even been studies. So Sean Bradley, the seven, six player, uh, they did done a study of his genome and they're just like, he's just filled with all these tall person genes. Uh, that it's very obvious, uh, just uh, from his, from his gene pool that he would be enormous. So you could imagine someone two, three years old, like my, my, you know, for me, I had no chance on my dad was five, eight on a good day. And my mom's about five, four. So, I mean, there was no, no way basketball was ever going to be in the, in the cards, but if you have a dad who's six, five and a, you know, mom that's six foot, knowing whether you're going to be like six, four, six, two, or six, nine, like, you know, would be really useful in deciding whether to how much attention to pay to basketball. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so the the most uh, genetic is basketball, right? Football is is pretty up is pretty high up there, right? 
It's a, it's um, a, it's a little bit lower. Football, ba- baseball is very interesting because baseball, there are tons of brothers, just an enormous number of pairs of brothers in baseball, but much fewer identical twins, certainly compared to basketball. If you do that, if you put that in my model, which I have my website, I'm feeling to play around with, uh, to, I, I might try to turn it into an academic paper at some point, but, uh, cause I think it's really, it's, it's really cool way, way to think about these issues is, so if you baseball, this domination of brothers and also father son pairs and very small number of identical twins, I think there's a big nurture component to baseball. So if you're Vladimir Guerrero Jr., you're definitely getting genes, but you're also learning how to swing at a very young age and getting your form exactly right. So that could be, uh, that could be could play in. So yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of funny because don't trust your gut was supposed to be a book of all the major life decisions. And I'm yeah, such a sports book is great. I, yeah. I'm such a sports nut that I'm just like, yeah, can yeah, I yeah. fit this in at all? I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, cause I can't spend four years really like I'm going to vomit if I have to look at another happiness study. Like I got to look at twins in basketball. I got to look at scholarships in sports. I got, I got to look at this stuff because I'm just like so obsessed with this, this info that it's, I'm always, I'm like, I kind of forced it in there. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah, the brothers versus twins is interesting because the, yeah, when you break up the uh, twin or the adoption studies, it's, it's same environment. So having hundred percent genes is not that big of an advantage over having 50% of the same genes, but being father son is a bigger, yeah, much bigger yeah. advantage of being unrelated. So our brother are just brothers. So yeah, that, that, that's great. And then the least, you know, stuff is like diving, right. And like, horse yeah, riding. equestrianism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, isn't, it, the, it, isn't the, some of the stuff like everybody, you know, everybody tries basketball at some point, everyone, like maybe a lot of people play baseball at some point, you know, but a uh, few people are even going to try diving. So it's like, it could be yeah. more genetic if like everyone, everyone, as many people play it as play basketball. For sure. I think it could be. Yeah. I, I think it may be. Uh, th- I think there are these studies. Were you tweeting about that? The Matt Iglesias, that politics becomes more genetic, the more knowledge you have, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I see there's, that, yeah. there's, uh, there, yeah, so there's interesting ways that, you, <laughs> that, that it could become more genetic. It'd be interesting to see how the genetics have changed over time. There's a lot more to do. The methodology I have to point out is far from perfect because uh, I didn't include this in the chart because I thought it was so obviously a problem, a limitation of the methodology. But if you do the percent of same sex siblings who are identical twins, the highest sport by a very, very wide margin is synchronized swimming. <laughs> and I don't think that's because of genetics. It's just because like they are the most synchronized. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't be more synchronized than looking exactly the same. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, 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 you always have to think of, I, I was trying to do it for actors and actresses as well. And, that that comes as off the charts genetic, but I think that's because identical twins just are kind of useful in the acting yeah. world. Yeah, uh, for a variety. Full of House, reasons. the Olsen twins. Yeah, that makes sense. They <laughs> they they come together. Although exactly. I think the Olsen twins are cons- consider themselves fraternal. Oh, if okay. I'm remembering correctly, Robert Plowman in his book Blueprint, it's like a not funny book at all. It's very dryly written, very academic. And I, I, I hope I'm not misremembering this. It might be from a different book, but at some point he says that he doesn't believe that the Olsen twins are genetic and wants to see, are fraternal and wants to see the data. And it was just, <laughs> just made me laugh out loud because it came out of nowhere. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, where did this, where did this line come from? So yeah, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, Bob is great. Yeah, that's a good book. I, I, he was actually a previous guest uh, okay. on this podcast. Um, I don't yeah. remember the also. I read the book. I don't remember the also. It might part. it might have been from a different book. I may be okay. mixing, conflating a couple stories. But <laughs> no, I, I could have just forgot. I, I forget things yeah. all the time. But, but what? Yeah. But one of them that surprised me was the uh, weightlifting is actually low. Right? Yeah, very low. Uh, you know, it, it, the, the samples I could have standard errors. So if you did the standard errors, you know, weightlifting maybe could be as high as 10% of, or like, I think about when I did the math, like 7% of the same sex siblings could be identical twins because it's a little bit of a small sport. So it may be, if I had to bet my life, like, I, I guess every time you do a study, you should be Bayesian. So you should start with what, how you think the world works and you should adjust a little bit. So weightlifting would have been high. And the fact that there is zero twins pushes me a little bit lower, yeah. but it doesn't put, I'm not ready to say that weightlifting is as low as equestrian and diving because it could just be yeah well weightlifting is an insane sport when it comes to just like dedication and lifestyle and trading and it could be you know the strength is you know highly genetic but like you know the times in my life like i've worked out a lot it's usually like something emotional going on like i'm trying to prove something or i'm trying to get girls or something and so it's like it seems like very environmental whether you actually want to make the sacrifice well if you're just a seven foot two guy right you just pick up basketball in, in high school and you just discover you're good at it so oh, it does sort of make sense i didn't even say uh steroids is probably yeah. <laughs> so that may elip- whatever genetics there are that may be swamped by just who took steroids and who didn't take steroids so yeah and maybe identical twins have more of a propensity but it just adds more error it just adds more yeah. you know, uncertainty to the, to the to the whole whole thing so yeah, yeah. the sports stuff is yeah fascinating and the, the sports stuff you said you know you were interested in but the first um the first I think times I came across your work in the media, it was for the sports stuff. So did that stuff get the most attention or was it just that? No, no, stuff? Uh, it's sports stuff always gets pretty low attention. Uh, sex got, gets a lot of attention. Who's rich gets a lot of attention. Yeah, you, had, a lot well, of you attention. had a New York times out, out bet on, uh, on, uh, basketball players and which class. Yeah. They yeah. Came yeah. From, yeah. yeah zip code. Uh, that got some attention, not as much as, uh, the, the, the by far the most, viral article I've ever had was I did a sex column in the New York times. Uh, and that just, uh, I, I, I kind of worded it away where it's a filthy article, but I made it seem very like, uh, I, I kind of have this skill of making things that are really filthy, <laughs> respectable to a New York times audience. So I think that was a good, Mix. Yeah, I think the sex, I mean, the sex data was also uh, fascinating. Um, the, you know, the uh, dating advice, I think was interesting. The, I think sometimes a few places, I think you, I, you know, I love the book and I, I think there's so much of it that's just gold, but sometimes I think you get a little bit ahead of the data. So when it was, um, when you talked about uh, what makes for a lasting relationship, and then one of the things is like, you know, something is like race and looks, which people look for, don't actually matter for your relationship to happiness. But, you know, you, you know you, you're smart enough to know there's a selection effect there, right? I mean, once you're in a relationship, if my cutoff is like a five and, you know, you're looking at five to ten doesn't matter. It doesn't tell you what it means if you, you know, you're with a two or a one. So isn't there sometimes like, you know, these we, we have to be a little bit careful with jumping to conclusions with these things? No, I definitely. I, but I think... uh I always try to be Bayesian in, in how I read every study. I try to be Bayesian, which is what would you have predicted before seeing the data? So before seeing the data, I might've say that, said that looks and sharing things and sh- having been very similar to your partner would be you know, up there among the more predictive you know, of relationship happiness, even taking into account uh, some selection effects. And you know, you're, obviously you're not randomly assigned to a partner. Uh, and then after seeing the data, I'm going to say they're much less important 
than I would have thought because I thought the study was really what was was very compelling with you know eleven thousand more than eleven thousand couples. Uh, you know, I, I talked to the lead author Samantha Joel and uh, you know went through the methodology. I'm like, okay, this seems certainly compared to other studies I'm seeing there it's way better. So I'm gonna adjust my you know yeah. opinions of the world. Uh, I, I, <laughs> writing a book. Uh, yeah, yeah it, I get it. It's, 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 it's if you yeah. ever do it. Oh, you you wrote a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I wrote a book. You yeah, wrote, exactly. You wrote a book and it was like 800 pages, right? Uh, yeah, it was different than yours. I mean, what you were doing, you were writing. Yeah, yours was, I don't know how long it was because I listened to them on audiobook, but it was six hours, which is not a long audiobook. And mine, I think if it was an audiobook, would be much longer. So I get your writing yeah. for a popular audience. And you yeah, can have, and it's, I have every caveat and every potential objection yeah, you, to everyone. You can't, you know, you, you're, you're kind of trying to find the sweet spot of trying to give advice that I, I fully believe that the data justifies less of an emphasis on looks and height and occupation and similarity to oneself than I would have, than most people are giving to dating and more of an emphasis on psychological traits. And, and the, the final uh, thing I talk about in the, the, that chapter is that uh, predicting changes in happiness is basically impossible in the data. So if you say I'm happy in relationship now, you're more likely to be happy in two years. But if you say, uh, and if you're unhappy, say I'm unhappy, you're more likely to be unhappy in two years. But anything you know about the partner can improve that prediction, uh, which I think, again, it justifies more of an emphasis, less of an emphasis than some people give to the fact, the, the traits of a partner once you're already in that relationship. So I think a lot of people say, certainly in my past, in my dating life, there have been times this is so good, but you know, this is ridiculous. You know, I, we come from such different backgrounds. Like, uh, you know, we don't have this in common, that in common. And I think, I think moving away from that mindset is justified based on the data. So, uh, so I try to write things that I think are legitimately justified in, in the data. <laughs> do I not present as enough caveats? Do I sometimes go too far? Yeah, I'll take, I'll take that hit. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. Yeah deny that uh you need to i mean you're writing for a popular audience there's just like it's just a different it's just different than academia yeah i've talked no, about I, I i get it you know the speaking of the you know the relationships and how they last I, you know i know you're from the books uh and we're going to jump around between both books because I, I i've read both in like the last week so i forget which is which i just have okay. all this stuff in my head uh okay. but you know you're obviously you know you're you've read uh, uh judith rich harris the nurture yeah, yeah, yeah. so one of the interesting things that you know i don't think many people remember from that book is if you look at um so you know identical twins are you know much more similar than people expect but one thing they're not similar on there was like no relationship if you compare their spouses so you if you have an identical twin, like uh, a twin A and twin B, their spouses are no more similar than like anyone in in, in the uh, general population. Uh, oh, I don't know if I that's held up it. over the yeah yeah it's, it's it's not a huge part of the book. I don't know if it's held up over the years, but it remind your uh, results on like sort of the unpredictability of relationships sort of reminded me of that. It's like studying individual humans is hard enough, but maybe it's just like once you have like you know. Once you just make a dyadic relationship, when you once you're trying to analyze two or three or four, just the problems just multiply so much, and it's just like hard to predict anything. And I sort of got that from the from the, a lot of the relationship uh, data in your book. I'd be surprised about that. I wonder if it has held up because the other thing I talk about in the book is the data from dating sites where people are incredibly predictable and are looking for all these traits, including similarity to oneself. That uh, you know that 
I think I, there's this study that's very well done that offers convincing evidence that people are 11.3% more likely to match with someone who shares their initials uh, on online dating, which is just so ridiculous. Uh, and, and, you know, they control for everything you could think to control for. And it still seems like people are more likely to share initials and they're more likely to match with someone who went to the exact same college as they did. So, you know, someone who went to UCLA instead of UC Berkeley or, uh, you know, yeah, like uh, uh, Wisconsin instead of Ohio State or, you know, the, the very yeah. similar. It, it, it's uh, just, I think it's just when you start multiplying correlations, though. You lose, so, so, like, identical twins are similar in a certain way. Partners might be similar to their own partner. Right? So, so you're separate. saying, like, it's, it's, you're multiplying them by each other. So, it gets Yeah, exactly. Smaller. You're multiplying each correlation. You're losing something. And then when you get to the relationship, right, you're two times. So when you get yeah. to the relationship, maybe there's just, it's hard to detect anything it is very um, interesting so I'll, I'll have to reread i gotta reread those those harry I, I i she wrote another book on no two alike or something that also is very interesting yeah uh, yeah i think that one is um yeah i think the rod shetty stuff i think um yeah it was it was in, i remember thinking it was interesting at the time but I, I remember thinking it's plausible but there really was a good methodology to test, you know, a lot of what she was saying. She was saying it was, you know, relation, you know, it was a, you know, it was the social circle. It wasn't, you know, parenting, but then I, you know, I thought the evidence was sort of like, yeah, you're like, okay. But, you know, I wanted to, it wasn't as I think solid as the nurture assumption uh, itself to tearing down sort of parenting is mattering that much and building up genetics, but just the, uh, the, uh, the unshared environment. I thought it was still open. Although, although your book and uh, Marchetti's work, I think, you know, did illuminate a little bit, of, uh, a little bit on that. Um, the uh okay i'll give you what well like I, I won't give you any more objections to like the use of data except there was one that drove me a little bit crazy so there was the um uh, the estimation of the number of americans who were uh, homosexual um it was based on porn searches now you know you know there's no reason to think that necessarily uh heterosexuals and homosexuals are searching for porn uh at a similar rate right so that that that's quite a big jump isn't it uh well, I think it's okay. I, I'll just, I just want to preface this. It's a, these are great books. I love 90% of them. So I'll just say I'll say a couple of things on this. I think the first thing that was striking in the data was if you ask people, are you gay? And particularly ask men, are you gay? There's enormous variation in different parts of the United States. So many more men say they're gay in New York and California than Mississippi and Louisiana. Uh, now there are couple potential reasons for that uh there i think the most likely explanations are that people born men more born gay in mississippi moved to california and then i think the other most likely explanation is that men who are gay in mississippi are in the closet i would say those are two you know there could be differences if if sexuality is genetic you would probably say you know sexuality is genetic then there could be and some men already moved to gay men already moved to california maybe they have more gay kids we don't know now, if you look at the fa my read of the Facebook data, which I could only look at a sample of it, is that mobility only explains a small fraction of that. So I think already there's evidence that people are in the closet. And then if you look at gay porn searches as a percent of uh, total searches, uh, you know, either in Pornhub or in Google searches, uh, Pornhub broken down by gender, Google searches not, it's, it is higher. There definitely is a positive, statistically significant relationship between uh, support tolerance towards homosexuality and gay porn searches, but it's much less sharp than the than the uh, relationship. Now, of course, again, getting to caveats, is it true that 
you know, that, uh, that maybe men in the closet are more likely to search for porn because they're not acting on their desires, which could push this in interesting direction, you know, push towards finding lower relation, exaggerating the extent of the closet. Uh, but there are other interesting things in that section. It, given all that, you know, again, if people think that I think that, you know, 5.0% of men are gay and the data has proven that, that's taken the, my findings way too literally. I do think based on that data, I'd be very surprised if it were as low as the surveys at the time ha have been saying, uh, you know, which is 2 or 3%. I know it's gone up, although not as much among men. The big rise has been among uh, women saying they're they're gay, but if someone said it's it's three percent, it's you know th the average in the United States is three percent, therefore three percent of men are gay. I'd say that's I, I don't believe it, not for a second, because I think there's clearly closeted gay men in Mississippi. If someone said ten percent of men are gay, as the Kinsey study said, I also say I, I I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised. Yeah, I think it's maybe maybe we'll see that because you could do your biases again. It's not. It's it, these things are not exactly equal, but I don't think there's a bias. I don't think gay men are like half as likely to look at porn in a way that would make it take 10% to 5%. I just, I just, I, I, I would be surprised if it, I would be surprised if it were, weren't in the range of uh, four to 6%, given that there's obviously massive, simple, massive complications, how you define bisexual men, you know, like, you know, asexual men, there, there's, there's a lot going on. I, I, I would be surprised if it wasn't the number didn't end up in that, a range like that. Yeah. Have you seen, uh, did you see Eric Kaufman's recent report on this about the uh, under 30? And yeah, well, what, yeah, the, yeah. So he's been talking and a lot of people have been talking about the rise of uh, LGBT members of society, particularly driven by li very liberal people and very liberal women uh, defining themselves as bisexual. Now, another thing that was striking in the data in Pornhub was the frequency with which women search for lesbian porn, uh, which I didn't go. So I went from, okay, men in Miss 2% of men in Mississippi say they're gay, but 4% of porn searches are gay. That means a lot of these men in Mississippi are in the closet. I didn't go from, 5% of women or whatever say they're, they're heterosexual, but 30% of porn searches are for lesbian porn. Therefore, there are all these women in their closet. I could have gone there. I didn't go there in part because uh, there are lots of reasons, which I don't need to necessarily get into why I didn't go there. But I, I do suspect that a lot of what's happening is that women who used to, who, women who had a lot of, you know, who, let's say, watch lesbian porn are now, and but call, consider themselves heterosexual, are now defining themselves as bisexual, which I don't think is, you know, I know, you, you know, you and some others have said that, you know, it's, it's like a social contagion and, and kind of going beyond real attraction or something. But I'd be skeptical, based on the, the porn data, I'd be skeptical that it's going beyond yeah, female. Yeah, female sexuality is more. I mean, I think that's an old idea going back, you know, for, you know, very long time that it's more spectral for women uh, than men. I, I believe that. I mean, I think it's you know, I think like people sort of wanna. I think with these kind of studies, people sort of sometimes want to know like what's like the real quote unquote the real rate of homosexuality or bisexuality. But it's like 
there's no real rate because there's like nobody's raised in a vacuum, right? So all there is is like, you know, expression in this particular society. And so it's like, you know, identity, behavior. I mean, something like height, you could talk about, okay, people who have normal development, no- normal nutrition, you know, they're going to reach this natural height. But sexuality, I mean, it's too complex. It, it is a cultural phenomenon to a great extent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, whether it's like, whether it's like people identifying as their true selves or like being, uh, you know, being like a more social contagious, I think these are sort of, you know, it's hard to separate these. I think there's just, you know, it's just we're pulling, you know, where it's like a spectrum of acceptance to like tolerance to celebration and like we're moving towards celebration. So we're just moving more people in that direction. I, I think that's sort of like a, a reasonable way, way to look at it. I, I, you know, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think Eric thinks this either. Yeah. He, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure he does it from the, from the report. He doesn't think it's just like completely made up. It's just people who have no same sex attraction at all. Just saying that they're uh, bisexual to be cool. Like he wouldn't say that. So yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of, I think we think about these things actually, you know, probably pretty similarly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, if I could rewrite Everybody Lies, I would have been like, I would have made a prediction. Don't be surprised if with changing norms, you see an yeah, enormous percent of women. Then I'd be, everybody would say, that's a genius. Yeah, you could have, you could have, forked, I, I, you could have, forked, you could have, it's interesting. It's that. hard to, it's so hard when you're writing something to say something that's kind of beyond what's accepted. I think a great data scientist does, uh, do that sometimes. Uh, I wrote this analysis that's in, in Everybody Lies, where I analyze Stormfront data. And I wrote this analysis. So Stormfront's the biggest uh, kind of hate site in the United States, most popular hate is, site is in the United States. Is it still big when you wrote that? I, I, I have the feeling that it's dropped off. I don't hear about it as I, much. I it's haven't followed up. I could look, since I'm, we could just look on Google Trends. That's yeah, probably the way to, <laughs> to see I remember, it. Uh, people used to talk about Stormfront a lot. It just, it just has gone sort of fallen by the wayside. Yeah, United States Stormfront. I'll do the the topic, the website. Yeah, it does seem like it's. I think what happened was the social media came along, it. and people just started on social media. And I'm pretty sure you can't post a storm Stormfront link. Oh, on no, I did Stormfront topic instead of Stormfront weather. I yeah, screwed up. yeah. I think website. social media probably killed a lot of these white nationalists. Yeah, it, it did. It did seem to peak in. Well, the highest week, which I said in my article was. Uh, well, the, for a while was when Obama was first elected, but it had, had, did drop. So it got a lot of attention more recently. Yeah, so I don't know. It's, but the point is, I wrote this article about Stormfront, and I'll tell you, it's interesting. People ask me, where do you get your ideas? This one was most interesting. I Googled myself, and I go, I was really excited that this website that I hadn't heard of was talking about me, and they were making very smart critiques of my article. They're like, Seth Stevens Davidowitz you know, says this, but I don't think it's true. And they're, they're like political junkies, you know, Obama lost this much due to racism. But, you know, if you actually look at the data, I would say that this state was actually going racist. It was very smart critique, like, oh, you know, really interesting site. And then it's like, I get to the site, I'm like, oh my God, you know, Jew Seth, Jew Seth, Jew, Jew this, Jew that. I'm like, whoa, what the hell? I, this isn't what I thought it was. And then I decided I'm going to study this site. And so I, I wrote that at the time, the most popular uh, hate site in the United States was predominantly focused on Jewish people and was dominated by political junkies and people who I considered intelligent members of society and very well-read members of society. Uh, you know, they could debate politics and Nietzsche and evolution. And, and I'm like, oh, that's very interesting. So I wrote this article uh, in the New York Times and my dad goes, 
to my mom, I didn't know. He told me uh, a few years later uh, that my dad had told my mom that Seth has gone completely insane. <laughs> that <laughs> Seth is basically down in a rabbit hole. He's taken this internet thing way too far <laughs> and now thinks there are these anti-Semites in the United States. Uh, you know, and we grew up in a sheltered environment where the you know suburbs of New York City where, you know, anti-Semitism was just not a thing any of us dealt with uh, or really thought of much of. And then when the Charlottesville protests happened and there were these neo-Nazis with tiki torches saying these anti-Semitic things, my dad went to my mom. He goes, I guess Seth was a little onto something with this analysis. And I, I think about that all the time because I really think these data sources are so revolutionary that you have to stick your neck out. You have to be willing to say things that have people say this person is crazy and it's so hard to do. Because we're always tempted. So the, the, you know, sexuality was a great example. We're always tempted. If you read that section, I walked it back so much, like, you know, because you don't want to be, it's kind of beyond what people are, are talking about. You, you filter things in through uh, the way people think about the world. And I think this data is revolutionary enough that you can stick your neck out more and say, there, there's this thing that nobody really knows about. Uh, that's that may blow up in a few years. Uh, so I try to keep that in mind and go kind of. Do you think? Do you think there's down. been a trend? So when you what you're telling me is, you know, I, it sort of reminds me of like how. So there's been a trend in like the last five six years to sort of censor a lot of these websites. So in like 2015, you could be an openly white nationalist and be on uh, on Twitter. Like David Duke could have a Twitter account. These other white nationalists, these other white nationalist websites had were on Twitter, and that's really started to change after 2016. Uh, the Trump election it picked up again after Charlottesville, where the, these people all just started getting banned. So you you talk about sort of like discovering them, learning, and like bringing this stuff to the surface. Do you think we maybe have done? You know, maybe there's some cost to sort of pushing this stuff underground and sort of banishing it from the public square now that so much of what we do is on social media? Uh, it's probably above my pay It's a complicated grade. question. I, yeah, yeah, a lot there. I, don't, I haven't thought too much about it. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I, I will I, say I, there was, there, yeah. there is, I think calling attention to things can be dangerous. Uh, I guess this is kind of a cousin of the Streisand effect. Uh, the, so I, I was remember I was once analyzing Google search data when everybody was attacking uh, Bannon for being anti-Semitic, and you know I think he was connected to Stormfront or something, and uh, and you see the Google searches. There are all these people searching Steve Bannon, and then there, there's rise search Steve Bannon. There are rise searches for Stormfront, and then there's rise searches for Are Jews Evil? So you know I think people fighting anti-Semitism or thinking, calling attention to what they considered Bannon's anti-Semitism was helping things, but it's not clear that that's true because <laughs> well, you're really yeah, I mean, attracting maybe... people who are uh, more, who are, who are going to be, who hadn't heard of these ideas and now are going to be drawn to them. So it's, so fighting hate's very interesting. I have this, this study we did with Evan Soltas on anti-Muslim attitudes, which I thought of everything I've done in my life. I think that was one of the ones I'm most proud of. Uh, and I think it's, it, it gets to some of these issues, how you actually fight hate in a successful way. Yeah. Do, you, do you think, and this gets to the data question and sort of how we use data, do you think the way we frame, you know, uh, you know, like, for, for example, you have data on predicting hate crimes. Now, you know, as you know, hate crimes are a tiny percentage of crimes in the United States, right? So we've had a, you know, a massive increase in the murder rate in the last 
year or two, thousands of li- thousands of lives. And it seems like we have such a disproportionate focus in like the media and in academia on hate crimes, on things motivated by prejudice, which is like, okay, yeah, we want to stop them. But aren't, you know, do we like, you know, are, are we maybe paying too much attention to this stuff for, you know, ideological or political well, reasons? And then when we take the data and focus on it, aren't, aren't we maybe directing our energies in the wrong place? Some academics, a couple professors said that when I wrote my first Obama paper, that they don't find these topics that interesting. Uh, and my response was, <laughs> I played the Holocaust card. <laughs> I said my grandparents are in the Holocaust. Yeah. So I think when you go through human history, the yeah. costs of hate have been enormous, that even if we're at a low level now, historically, I do think, you know, in, in human history, major problems have come from hate, that it probably does warrant uh, more attention than a random crime. Uh, so I, I would, I would play, I'll, I'll play the Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but then it, then it goes back to what you're, so you're bringing more attention, right? You're, you're telling people sort of, uh, you know, what, what, you know, if you're, you know, you're, so you're, uh, you know, people are seeing that, okay, that, that itself focusing on it. And so, you know, it's a country of 300 something million people. You're going to be able to find hate crimes and, you know, evil things that happen. Um, you know, you could be by folk, putting, putting a disproportionate focus on that stuff, you know, contributing to more of it. You could have, you know, hatred going the other way, and then you could have a reaction, a counter reaction, raising the salience of racial tensions, right? Itself, you know, could potentially be dangerous. That's tough. That's, yeah, the, the bet against the, the best, the study that I did with Soltas was very interesting. It was, it was studying the minute to minute when Obama was speaking about anti Muslim oh, yeah, attitudes. That. That yeah, was this funny. was after San Bernardino attack. And, Everything Obama said, he, he just started lecturing people. He's like, you know, we, we have to appeal to uh, freedom, not give in to fear. We have to love our neighbors, no matter their religious background. Like just classic Obama. And I'm a bit of an Obama fanboy, which maybe people won't like. But I'm like, ah, you know, go, go Barack. <laughs> and like all the other Barack fanboys like myself, you know, the Boston Globe and Newsweek. There's like, you know, this great, great, great stuff, you know, he nailed it. But then we actually look at the searches from, there are these really nasty searches which predict hate crimes. I hate Muslims. Muslims must die. Kill Muslims. They were all shooting up during the speech. But then at the end of the speech, he goes, we have to remember Muslim Americans are our friends and neighbors. They're our sports heroes and they're the men and women who will die for our country. And then you see that uh, searches for Muslim athletes shoot up and searches for Muslim soldiers shoot up and people are like, oh, who are these people? And you see on social networks, young men, people most at risk have anti-Muslim attitudes. They're going, Shaq was Muslim. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was Muslim. Hakeem Elijah was Muslim. They didn't know that some of their Wait, sports Shaq heroes- is Muslim? Shaq is Muslim? Wait, was that, did I mess that up? Did you say Shaq? Yeah, I, I, I love that. He, he not? could be, but I don't, let's see. Shaq, Muslim. Let's see who has a faster internet connection. Yeah, I messed that up. Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, when asked in a 2010 interview who he thought was the best center of all time, he said, another Muslim brother, Hakeem Olajuwon. He then confirmed his plans to visit Turkey and one day undertake the Muslim pilgrimage. Hey, I did not know that. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly... You don't associate Shaq with <laughs> with praying five times a day. <laughs> it just always seems yeah. to be partying. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so that's, so basically, uh, lecturing people 
to love Muslims is way less effective to a young man than saying Shaq is Muslim. Uh, it was my conclusion to that, which I think is, after you say it, pretty obvious. Uh, but, and then the, Obama gave another speech, which in a Baltimore mosque, and he just totally doubled down on this. He just, everything was who's Muslim that you didn't realize was Muslim or, you know, Muslims place in American history. And, so did they, did they uh, know this? Did they know, did they know about your data? I, I think I haven't talked to anybody confirmed it, but it was so striking that I couldn't imagine it wasn't influenced. Cause you literally see this next speech three weeks later, it was just completely like just eight paragraphs on everybody who's Muslim and all the Muslims role in American history. All these things you wouldn't have known that Muslim built Americans built the skyscraper Chicago. Thomas Jefferson had a Quran in his office or something just like, yeah, like, uh, yeah, all of these, you just, you'd have the exact same response. Is that true? Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, he just like really went big on that. And it, you did see that a lot of the negative search on Muslims dropped. And there was a study recently, as big a sports fan as I am, I'm not a huge soccer guy. So Liverpool got a new player. Uh, I forget his, who's Muslim. And that, uh, there was a study that there's been a big drop. Mohammed Salah, there's been a big drop in uh, anti-Muslim attitudes among Liverpool fans measured in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the ways they looked on Twitter of people who follow uh, Liverpool, so they're fans of them. And then uh, after Salah joined the team, just way fewer anti-Muslim posts among those people. Uh, it's it's, it's yeah, all very... It's, it's, believe, it's believable. Yeah, it's very believable. I mean, this, this is uh, intuitively correct. People don't like being lectured at. I mean, you could, you could see that. You could see, the, you could see the success of Trump. I think if one thing will last you like six years... <laughs> People really don't like being lectured at about, uh, you know, from from uh, from media and you know establishment people. Um, yeah, that's uh, that, that's that's fascinating. The uh, um, so yeah, I mean, there, it's sort of it's a, a little bit of a like a, you know, I think the people who want to like, I mean, it sort of goes back to what we were t- just talking about before this. It's like the sort of the lecture. The, I think to, uh, focusing on the hate crimes and sort of the the prejudice people face does feel like lecturing to some people. So it does seem like you know maybe that does um, you know potentially have a have a uh, unintended consequence while just saying, hey, look, Muslims, you know, athletes, entertainers, you know, your friends, your neighbors. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that you know. Okay, this is one study. I think when I when and it was done with Evan Solis. I think when I, when I finished it, you know, I'm so arrogant. I'm like, you know, I've solved hate in the United States. I've done what Martin Luther King Jr. and all these others failed to do. And you know, obviously, that's not you know that's that would also be taking this anal- this uh, study too far. There's a lot more work to be done. But I think it's unambiguous that a lot of things times people do things that uh, allows themselves to pat themselves on the back and congratulate each other. So if if I hadn't done this study with, with Soltas, if we hadn't done this study, then uh, Obama just, everybody just would have said amazing speech, home run, grand slam, he knocked it out of the park. But it's like, yeah, the, but but I think the data shows that it wasn't very far from uh, a grand slam. That, that must happen all the time in hate. It, it, uh, yeah. In politics and everywhere. Yeah, I think that's politics right. Politics everywhere, uh, yeah. You know, one of the things, speaking of like, you know, um, so uh, another way is sort of the use of data and sort of the the assumptions that we use data. I liked your, you know, you had a chapter in one of the books on people's looks and like how we uh, mm-hmm. how we are uh, prejudiced in pr- people based on their looks. And one of the studies I thought was funny that you cited, it was uh, the it was about the faces of like military men. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. West Point graduates or something. And then yeah, you could yeah. predict how far they went in the military. And your interpretation was, well, we're stereotyping them as, you know, something, something or like they're getting an advantage. Isn't the other possibility that maybe... 
like the facial features do correlate with some underlying real trait. I mean, th- well, the, that, the thing is that that study uh, correct controlled for everything else they could think to control for, which you think would also. So they controlled for athletic ability at in West Point and grade point average and many other things. So I think it's it's a little hard for me to think that it's yeah, correlating with something that yeah. doesn't that doesn't predict athletic ability. That's correlating something doesn't predict athletic ability or grade point average or family backgrounds. But as I, I I I thought it was pretty convincing. I think the evidence on looks and how superficial we are is and how much uh, you know like. I was writing that chapter and I go and they go. Uh, so the, the most famous study in this arena is this Alexander Todorov that uh, he could, he shows people pictures of pe- two, uh, two pictures, people running for uh, an election, uh, Senate and congressional races, gubernatorial races as well. And uh, just ask them which one looks more competent. And 70% of elections are won by the, candidate that people say ju- is judged more com- competent and again try to control for everything else that still pretty much holds and uh so i, I was working that book during the uh pro- democratic primary 2020 democratic primary and everyone's like well who's going to win the pri- the primary and i say well it doesn't really count because if you advance to this level you already have to look the part so you know every everybody who's running the serious candidates already look the part but i'm like but Biden clearly looks more like a president than any of these other people. Uh, and, but I, again, I didn't stick my neck out and be like, Biden's going to win. But it was, if you lined them up and said, which one looks like president, I think it was pretty clear that Biden was, uh, will, I don't know. Like, Biden do you think like, that. so like Seth Moulton sort of looks like a president to me, right? He was went nowhere. Yeah. He, he, well, I think, he, I think he, of the serious candidate, obviously there's, why didn't you ever, why didn't you ever get attraction? Cause he was a, he was a um, congressman and he yeah, does so look he, like a, you, you might, have, you might've imagined he would have done a little bit better. You know, uh, you look at someone like A.B. Klobuchar, you know, there's the, you know, sex differences. And so like, you know, like, I don't know, like A.B. Klobuchar doesn't really well, look it's, like. It's 70%. So it's not a hundred percent. Obvious. I mean, just look at the height of politicians. Yeah. Uh, but isn't that's it, not uh, predicting isn't anything. It, you know, for in areas of in areas of life, probably this doesn't work for politics because like, but like we as a species, one thing we evolved better to do than anything else is read people's faces. So like, you know, a human can recognize human faces better than any machine. It's a thing that machines can't, you know, can't match us on. And it's like, you know, maybe like we are very good at picking up these cues. So if you're looking at military men, they're like, yeah, yeah, you control everything. But like, I have this machine in my brain that's been honed perfectly for exactly this task looking at people's faces and seeing you know what their underlying traits are and so you know you can't dismiss the possibility that you know maybe that that they're you know we're discriminating against people based uh how they look but also at the same time like the looks are actually telling us something well it's also telling us it may be how if everybody's discriminatory then it might be wise to be discriminatory in this way so a lot of people in 2020 democratic primary just wanted to find someone electable so if they say this guy looks most like the president, then the general election voters are going to also think he looks more like the president and vote for him. And that would be maybe wise. I think Peter Thiel said something like this. Maybe we should think more about, he always tries to say these, you know, go, go against conventional wisdom. So he's interviewed in the New York Times. They said, uh, Trump cares too much about what people look like. And Peter said, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, said, maybe, we, maybe, uh, maybe we should think more about what people look like. I don't exactly. want my secretary of state, uh, 
you know, looking like a schmuck uh, yeah. when he's negotiating <laughs> against the other country. But yeah, uh, I, I, I think I, that was I think that was Marine. I think that was like he was, I think he was talking to Marine Dowd actually. Yeah, I, I remember okay. reading the exact same thing and also yeah, yeah, being yeah. struck by it because yeah, I thought that was that was interesting. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot here. I mean, the, the, uh, you know, the, I was reading some kind of, uh, uh, summary of, a of a study, of uh, how do you pronounce that word? Physiognomy, uh, about the, uh, how Oh yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's it right. It was saying yeah. that like, you can actually look at men and then, you know, just look at their faces and predict like, you know, how, how racist that racist. I don't know if, I don't always like these definitions of racism they have in, you know, political science, but whatever, whatever they were measuring, you could see that. And then, so it's, and it's like, you know, this is a thing that used to be, you know, and it's like, you could do this for how racist people are because like, you know, you could say racism is unquestionably bad, but like, if you wanted to do that for like intelligence or criminality, you know, it would probably be politically a lot harder. So I just wonder, you know, I, I don't think we're at a place. I think the taboo on sort of genetic, this genetic determinist stuff is so, and, and lookism is just like so strong that, you know, I, I don't, you know, we just don't know what we don't know because I don't think there's much good research that can be but done. There's on also a question. question. If you start, I, I asked actually, I was interviewing Todorov, the book and i asked him have there been any studies which i found really interesting if people start acting like the way they look uh so if you look really presidential are you going to start acting more presidential i always suspected that like really attractive people always converge on this not not always but with very high probability converge on this very uncontroversial persona where they're just very nice to people because you don't need to rock the boat you know if you're tom brady Tom Brady's always nice to everybody, always shaking everybody's hand. Thank you, Mr. Kraft. Thank you, Mr. Belichick. Uh, super respectful. And there's no need to, it's just such a successful strategy. There's no need to shake things up at all. Uh, and I've, I've seen a lot of people in the, you know, the 99th percentile look. So I feel like act in a very, a, a way, uh, this, a similar personality. I do wonder if there's a way in which we, a different personality is going to work better on actually, different people's did, actually, another Judith Rich Harris thing, I you know I remember uh, they when she was talking about twin studies, and so one of the uh, potential objections was people treat identical twins alike, so they become more alike. Yeah. And then she mentioned a study. I don't know how solid this is, but they found doppelgangers. They like they fought in, like me. They would find somebody who looks like me, but is in no way related. And apparently, they didn't find any uh, correlation uh, with personality. So if that's true, well, it goes against what yeah. I've been just saying. But it's yeah. uh, it is a way to. T- Todorov said there hasn't been a good study on this but uh i think it's it's it would be interesting yeah yeah and that that would go against people treating them different and that would also go against the phys- physiognomy as as a, as a real force but you know i just like intuitively like you look at some people you look like a military man that looks like a military that guy's not going to be a, you know just like intuitively i have very strong intuitions about like some people look but like, i, I, real, I gotta think that we're horrible at actually making these judgments i don't i agree that it's a politically sensitive area like i, I think there are Many times where, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I follow a lot of people on Twitter who say things that I'm like, yeah, that's a hundred percent true. And nobody wants to say it. Uh, I don't, I would be surprised that that one doesn't ring true to me. That one rings as we're just misled that if there's no reason to think that someone who looks like a general has any better ability to, I I guess, I guess other people are tricked. Yeah. If If others, like, like this example, that they've also done studies that people who look baby-faced are more likely to get off on a crime than people who don't look baby-faced. Because they're like, that person can't be a criminal. Come on, look at his face. And that, there's just no, I, I would be shocked if that's, 
if there's a some big some big correlation that we're picking up on that really people are baby faced are less likely to commit crimes. Well, the physio- the physiology. So if you give like people like testosterone injections, right, they will change. Personality will change, and looks will change too. So there's a lot in your body that's you know that's the, the mind and the body are not completely that separate. It's you know the certain hormones, certain traits are going to be associated with both. And you'd think we'd be decent at picking that up. Like you know, you prefer like if you say like I, I don't know about like differences between generals, like who is a good general or who is not a general, but you take like generals as a class and then you compare them to literature professors or something like i would be shocked if there was a universe where all the literature professors look like generals and all the generals look like <laughs> literature professors how do you feel what's what's your intuition about that yeah but i i, I yeah I, I agree i don't know that the, you're i don't know how to interpret that difference i think a lot of it is people leaning into what makes them leaning into what uh your best shot at having a successful life so i i do suspect that if you did studies like the ones I was recommending that Todorov do, that people do lean into their look a little bit. That uh, that I don't know that uh, you know that if you're if everybody is drawn to you from a very young age as a leader or as a politician, you're going to be more likely to become a politician. If everyone thinks of you as yeah. a professor, but, then you're more likely. But, to these, but these sort of these sort of stereotypes and what people think about they have to sort of seem like they would be based. In, so like, why do we think that? this is a general, this looks like a leader, and this looks like an intellectual, and this looks like a criminal. It does seem like you know, maybe they're leading into it, and so they're they're exaggerating the natural differences, but it seems like... Well, I think the criminal one, we're probably confused by the difference between children and adults, maybe. That baby-faced people remind us of kids who do legitimately commit fewer crimes. So we're like, a kid's not going to murder... Or, or, or like, yeah, a man who looks a little bit more feminine. Yeah, same thing. Women are less likely to commit crimes too. You're, yeah, you're. So it could be just some kind of fault. Yeah, that would be an example. Overgeneralization. Of overgeneralization yeah. from a different sample. I, uh, I, I would be shocked yeah. that there isn't overgeneralization. I think there's also. So Nassim Talib has this point that uh, if you go to a doctor and there are two surgeons, maybe you've seen this. One of them looks like George Clooney, and one of them looks like a butcher at, <laughs> at the same hospital. Go with the yeah. butcher because the butcher has to be so much better to have reached that point because we are so give such an advantage to people who look the part uh, that you, you know, we, you want to go over. I want to do a study. I still might do it. I didn't fit in in this book of uh, NFL coaches because uh, I'm a huge Jets fan and the Jets always hire a coach that just looks like he's going to be an amazing coach. And he just has this deep voice. He looks like the military man. He's like just dominant. And everyone's like, yeah, we got it. We solved it this time. And then the coach freaking sucks. And I wonder if there's a similar phenomenon that, in my opinion, the two most successful NFL coaches of the modern era are Andy Reid, who looks like a plumber, and Bill Belichick, who looks like, I don't know, like a high school history teacher or something. (laughs) And I wonder if if you correlated across all the coaches, that coaches that look the part less are more likely to be successful because to reach that level, they have to be so much better than the schmucks the Jets always hire who like who look like they were born to be NFL coaches. Yeah. Yeah. So th- yeah, this, this is an interesting hypothesis that it seems it seems testable. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, people have different intuitions. It's hard to, I mean, that's why I think, you know, having taboo on researching these things is, is so bad because yeah, we, we were sitting here and we're speculating and it's, it's fascinating. There's, there's, you know, different ways to sort of understand it or look at it and people have different intuitions. So, <clears throat> you know, it'd be cool to just try to learn as, as much as possible about these things. Um, the, uh, 
you know, I, the one place in your, so most of your uh, book, I think, was more of like, you know, academic or theoretical interest for me. I, I think the one thing that I did, um, uh, you know, sort of I took with me and, you know, I've only read the books a few days ago, but changed my life a little bit in those few days is the part on, you know, how to be happier. Um, okay. So can you uh, just talk a little bit, just, I mean, set the scene about like the background yeah, yeah. of this literature is and, so, and uh, what it is. It's, it's interesting because a lot of the reviews of don't trust your gut, I pitch it as a self-help book and you're not the first one who has said interesting read, entertaining read doesn't work as a self-help book, uh, which is, I, 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 I would push back a little bit. I think that's maybe people taking it a little too far that I wanted people to be Bayesian and just adjust a little more based on that. So well, if you really I'm, think I'm, I'm married, I'm married. So like the dating okay. part, didn't apply. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the other things, but, but I will, I mean, but the happiness part was like, we, you could, that, that, you know, that, that I think is, does work as a self. Yeah. So I think the, yeah, yeah. I, I, the happiness section. So I decided I was going to write about happiness. The, the nice thing about don't trust your gut is the book just kind of wrote itself. Cause once you say I'm going to write a self-help book with data, you just like the chapters, you don't have to think very hard of what the chapters are going to be. You're going to have a chapter on dating and spouse, picking a spouse. You're going to have a chapter on parenting. You're going to have a chapter on, you know, getting rich, I guess. You don't have to have a chapter on sports, but if you're me, you're going to have a chapter on sports and you're definitely going to have a chapter in this case, two chapters on happiness. Uh, and so I started reading happiness papers and happiness papers. I hate to say this because some of the, I really respect a lot of the researchers most of them I just found so underwhelming. Even happiness studies that have become famous where where like where you know they kind of entered the zeitgeist. If they interviewed, you know, 200 undergrads and they asked them what made them happy or they did some tiny lab experiment that seemed so unconvincing. Uh so I so I was I was really demoralized because I'm like this is just not my point is big data and how all these new data sets are really revolutionizing our understanding. Happiness. Then I came across this project Nappiness by two economists, which isn't a coincidence because I think I'm a trained economist. I'm probably more drawn to those methodologies and natural experiments and large data sets and multivariate regression. Uh, the Mappiness Project, uh, George McCarran, Susanna Morado, where they're pinging people on their phone and they're asking them, uh, who are you with? What are you doing? And how happy uh, you are? And they built a data set of 3 million happiness points, uh, tens of thousands of people. And they're doing all these things, these studies that I'm like, wow, that is just really convincing. So one of my favorite studies, not surprisingly, based on what a sports nut I am, was they offered what I think was unambiguous evidence that the average sports fan is getting screwed in sports. That uh, So it, it's a British study, so they're studying soccer, and they're saying fans of teams, what happens to their mood during, before, and after a game? And it's this tr- natural experiment uh, where the, the team wins, team loses. And they found the average sports fan gains about four points when their team wins. And the average sports fan loses about eight points when their team loses. And because it's soccer, they had this really neutral test. What happens when it's a draw? And on draw, you lose a, a, a few points on average. And I'm just like, wow, that is just completely convincing. I'm not, uh, it, it's a really, in my opinion, a natural experiment, uh, follow, tracking people through their days. And... There, another study they did on nature I thought was completely compelling uh, where they compared the same people doing the same activity with the same people, but sometimes they're in nature and sometimes they're not in nature. 
And they found this huge mood boost when you're in nature and particularly whether you're, when you're near a body of water. Uh, and I just, so I, I think like you, uh, most times I read a study, I'm just like, yeah, that's cute. Uh, no, I'd say, okay. So if I read, uh, a hundred studies and these are already selected studies where someone famous has tweeted them, or I found the title convincing, I say 95% of them, I don't believe. And then among the other 5%, uh, probably 90% of those, they'll just be making some subtle point that doesn't really have any impact on me. I'm like, okay, yeah, I believe that, but I don't really care. It's not going to change how I view the world in any fundamental way. But then this occasionally, you know, the one percenters, uh, you get a study where now I take most of my trips to beaches and I used to walk, uh, I haven't, to be fair, moved out of Manhattan, which if I took the study really to the next level, I probably should get out of, uh, move out of Brooklyn, New York City. I should move out of Brooklyn. But all my walks I used to take on this busy street, Fulton Street near me, and I thought I liked the energy. Now I always walk by the Brooklyn, beautiful Brooklyn riverfront, uh, much quieter, get this mood boost. The, if a study is convincing enough, I'm willing to make pretty big changes in my life. Uh, and I think the big, <laughs> the big uh, takeaway from mappiness, in my opinion, was the things that make people happy <laughs> are pretty obvious. Uh, so I, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about the people who make people happy. It's a romantic partner and friends and no, and basically nobody else. Uh, the weather that makes people happy, it's above 75 degrees and sunny and nothing else seems to really matter very much. Nature makes people happy. The activities that make people happy uh sex was number one exercise gardening taking a hike you know somewhat surprising but it, w- it wasn't lighting the world on fire with these findings but then i kind of concluded there was profundity and the obviousness of the happiness research that like you kind of we're all looking for these cheap answers uh and really the things that make people happy are pretty simple and we just have probably all could benefit from doing more of these things so are Uh, are californians and hawaiians happier than minnesotans and uh people in illinois and uh, there should be a strong correlation there right yeah they've done studies uh it's not just as simple as weather but it, it does my read of the evidence the best study on this is unhappy cities by my former advisor uh ed glazer and others and they've ranked every city based on happiness New York City is right near the bottom. Uh, many cities are just horrible, and Hawaii just uh, scores through the roof. Uh, California doesn't do as well. It it has some it has good weather as nature, but it's also chaotic and polluted. Uh, and uh, Florida, Arizona, so they're they're definitely and they also found that when you move out of an unhappy place into a happy place, you get a mood boost. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, if you look at the European suicide data, you know who knows if this is genetic or whatever. You see the Northern Europeans drink a lot and commit a lot of suicide and then the Southern Europeans much less so. So, you know, maybe, yeah, that's uh, consistent with it. Although, you know, obviously there's a lot going on there. When I was living the dream as a keynote speaker, I was giving a talk in Northern Norway in the heart of winter where they have about two hours of sunlight. And I was doing an, 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 and I was, you know, I'm a, I consider myself a Google trends expert. So I'm like, can this be good for people's mood to have two hours of sunlight and freezing cold? 
And I looked at the data on depression and anxiety, and in these months, it's just through the roof. It's just off the charts. And I'm uh, so I just presented that to them. I'm like, you know, you might want to try not living in a climate that gives you freezing cold and two hours of sunlight. But then again, uh, I just Googled happiest countries in the world, and it confirms what I've seen before. Finland, Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland, Netherlands. There's some conflict between suicide data and happiness data. Some people say that people commit suicide when they're unhappy in a happy place. So if you're, if everybody around you is happy and you're unhappy, you're going to, that's going to drive you to suicide. If everybody's miserable and you're miserable, you're less likely to commit suicide. I think this area needs a lot more work. Yeah. Uh, well, the uh, other, I mean, the other obvious possibility is just these Nordic countries for some reason have a cultural bias towards saying you're happy, not, not complaining. Yeah. Either. Yeah. You know, I, it's, uh, everybody lies is all about you can't trust people what people tell you on surveys and then i have these two chapters and don't trust your gut about people saying they're happy it's a little it's a little uh you know i it's it's there's definitely you definitely do have to treat the data with a little caution uh people telling you they're happy but i i do think i thought the mappiness so i include this i don't know if you saw if you let only read the audiobook uh the, I include the happiness activity chart where you yeah, just yeah. rank we get the, 40. We get the PDF supplement, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I have 40 uh, activities on happiness. And I just view that chart as an indictment of modern life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really is striking when you look at the things that people say make them happy. They're, they're not always, but so old school. Uh, hunting and fishing, uh, yeah. gardening, walking around with friends, you know, uh, being in nature, running around. And you see the things that make people miserable. It's working, uh, standing on a line, uh, doing chores, filling out forms. And then the leisure activities that make people miserable are all modern things, the internet, social media. Yeah. So we really do have to, I think, rethink. So I, I, I think there's a pretty big danger of uh, some, 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 some aspects of modern life, I think, are just we're just not... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, I haven't made a huge change to my life yet, but uh, the other day I was um, with family and I uh, turned my phone off for two hours, which is a great (laughs) accomplishment for me. Which does very, very rare. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna build up to doing to doing more of that. So yeah, the the social media data in particular is is very. Oh, just go just before we get to that, they go back back to that data. The uh, stuff about the Scandinavian countries and you know whether you know believe the surveys or the suicide rates or whatever. The Google Trends should be able to potentially solve this, right? They the, you can look across nationally, and you would uh, you know you trust Google, you trust any kind of Google Trends more than you would survey results, right? So I mean, has that been done or is, yeah? Done so depression that? is highly correlated with weather. I actually did a quick study on this, and it's pretty striking in the winter months uh, how. Uh, that depression just shoots up in Chicago in ways that it doesn't in Honolulu. Uh, it's pretty much the strongest correlation that I found in the data. I think there've been other academic papers on this as well. So, uh, you know, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's always complicated. You know, mood is, there are many dimensions to mood, depression, anxiety, joy, fulfillment, meaning there, there's so much it's, it's complicated to make, uh, full to to anytime you're limiting it to one number, you're probably missing something. Yeah, yeah. The, so yeah, so the social media. I mean, it's interesting because the, I love that study where they pay people 
not yeah, to yeah. use Facebook. And it, it's a huge effect size, is it, is, isn't it? Enormous. And there's been a follow-up study for social uh, – after I finished the book. That was, at the time, the only randomized controlled trial. But there's a, a more recent study where they – I don't know if they paid people, but they have people off social – uh, social media more generally, not just Facebook. And again, an enormous decrease in uh, depression, increase in well-being. So it's pretty, it's pretty compelling. And, you know, there's uh, that one of the caveats with the happiness data, which I did, I probably, if I could redo the book, I would have talked about it a little bit more, is we're talking about averages and everyone's going to say, well, I'm different. So the average person may not like Facebook. The average person may like an 80 degree day, but I hate the heat. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, I think it's, it's my suspicion, which again, this has, to, I wish that this was studied. It hasn't been studied to the degree I wish it was studied is that people exaggerate their differences on happiness. So if you did a weighted average of what people think makes them happy and what makes the average person happy, I'm pretty confident it's not a hundred percent on what people think makes them happy. Um, and I'm pretty sure that it may be smaller than th- that. The weight may be surprisingly low on what people think makes them happy. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not as one, special as we think basically. And yeah, there's the one study that points in this direction is they cite introverts and extroverts and w- the mood boost they get from being around people. And they both get the exact same mood boost. Uh, uh, so, so y- yeah, go ahead. Finish. Yeah, so introverts tend to think, and I consider myself a 99.9th percentile introvert. I know the definition of introvert is not simply the mood boost from being around people. There's also, uh, you know, recharge, energy recharge. But I think introverts probably think on average that they're going to get less of a mood boost from being around other people, but the data seems to suggest that they need, they get just as big a boost as anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I think about, so like we've had, such a societal failure. I mean, one of the striking uh, things in the book, I think you show like how Americans spend their time oh, yeah. like between, I think, what is it like 2000 and 2019 or something like that? Was that? It's, it's whenever the American time use, I think whenever it started 2003 or something. Yeah. And it's uh, like yeah. our GDP is significantly higher than 2003 by, you know, whatever percentage. And we're, if anything, spending less time on things we make us happy and more time spend you know, spending doing things we hate. And it's like, what a failure. Like, what was all this economic growth and, you know, progress for if we're just, you know, standing in lines or sitting in traffic? I mean, this, you know, reducing this friction to life should be like a goal of, you know, public policy, should it not? A hundred percent. And I do think that, you know, to the degree, I, I, the book, to the degree it's pushed as a self-help book, that is something that people should think about. Uh, so I, you know, I'm such a nerd that I got the happiness activity chart uh, printed on an iPhone case, uh, uh, which, but I think everybody could look at that chart and really the goal of life, a goal of life is find the activities that you hate and find ways to spend less time doing them. And there's definitely a complication that work scores very low. And what do you do with that information? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are going to say they're different. I think you or I would think that exploring ideas and writing about them is a big part of what gives us joy. So that's a complication. But some of the other things in the chart, waiting in lines and doing chores, we all have to think, 
how can we minimize the amount of time we're doing those things that we hate? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, um, <laughs> it's a good argument for like, you know, open immigration. Like people say, Oh, these poor immigrants, they come, you just want people to mow your lawn and uh, watch your kids and clean your house. It's like, yes, <laughs> that's what the happiness data says. I should be spending my money on, right. Uh, spending time, less time doing the things I, I hate. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, do you think that like, you know, for like, uh, something like maybe had the happiness to a certain extent, but like, I think especially for something like dating, it's one of the earth, even like trying to be happy. Now that I think about it, it's like, it's like a thing that it becomes elusive once you focus on it too much. So if you're, if you're going on a date, I think the worst advice is, you know, uh, do a cost benefit calculation of every word that comes out of your mouth and analyze like this woman at every point in the date to see if she's the right person for you. And it's like, obviously you could go over, obviously that's a recipe for potential disaster. Um, and then, you know, you know, the question it, it, we, I think, you know, I think that people generally from just my experience and just knowing people is that they, especially in dating and personal relationship, they err too much on the side of sort of overanalyzing and overthinking rather than, um, that rather than going with natural, what's natural. So like, yeah, it's okay to say, okay, the data can tell you, you know, X, Y, Z, but the data has not said so far that focusing on the data is better than not focusing on the data, right? You need an RCT to say, what is the ideal amount to focus on the data and what is, and maybe, and what is like, you know, and when should you just use a different heuristic, like, you know, just have a positivity bias or just do this or just do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's sort of like the data is like yeah. great. It teaches us something, but we don't know if using the data is actually good in a practical sense. There is one RCT. I didn't include in my book because I try one thing I, I try to do in the book, and I'd be curious if someone like you picked this up. Is I really tried to only include studies that I thought were convincing, and that the average I noticed the average self help book that is evidence based, in my opinion, they have something they want to say, and then they just find a study to confirm that. And you can find a study to confirm absolutely anything. And with this book, I, I hope this came across, and I think the sliver of the i was probably speaking to one percent of the population in doing this but i really tried to focus on the methodology and not the results and you know the mappiness project i thought was compelling i thought that samantha joel's study on relationship uh you know the, the study on the rct on facebook it was really trying there were there are two studies that i'm not going to name that i forced in there that i don't think hit that where i'm just like i need a study to to talk about here and they didn't quite hit that level but there are only two the every other study made it through what i consider a very rigorous process of only if i thought there was useful information in that study so there was one study where they randomly informed people of the activities that make them happy and they claimed that the people who got that information were happier following being told what activities make them happy. I just, I didn't love the study for, for reasons I'm not going to get too, too deep into that I didn't include in the book, but I think you're right that, uh, that, you know, that that's a, a promising area of research. Uh, my, I'm pretty optimistic I, when you don't have a study, you kind of have to go based on your own experience and things you've heard in the world my dating life got way better when I got more intentional about it and really thought through both with studies and just thinking through the, thinking through what actually would help me find a, a, a maid who would make me happy. 
and my happiness has improved since I started doing these things. I I barely watch sporting events with teams I'm fans of anymore. Uh, I spend more time in nature. I force myself to do things that I don't want to do that take a little energy to get started. And I've def so, so I, I feel pretty, pretty confident that there's value in knowing stuff yeah so yeah I've, I've also i've also tried to use you know data for um for dating stuff in particular and socializing and stuff and my my experience with data has been a little bit complicated it's like you know it, it does help me see things that i otherwise uh w- wouldn't have seen it i think that like the advice for example on the ok but i think one way you can use the data is like there's plenty of fish in the sea. You're playing a probabilistic game. Like, you know, if, if, if 99% of women hate you, you know, you hit on 200 women, you know, you'll find a girlfriend or, or two. I think that's good. That's good advice. But I think at some point I learned, I think I learned that like, you know, it's like, I didn't have these instincts naturally, but it was like, you know, I tried to better myself based on more, more evolutionary theory than actual data, but you know, a little bit of data. And then, and then at that point, it's like, okay, the ideal for a personal relationship, they get to a point where it sort of becomes natural and you're doing a thing that's like consistent with you, with who you are. And then like consistent with like, you know, how you've learned to interact with the world. And I think that's like, gotta be the goal. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, it can't just all be data. It's gotta be like a very, very personalized sort of journey to get to a place where, you know, things just become natural. I I don't disagree. Uh, Obviously you can't just, just use data and become an attractive potential mate. Like you have to open your mouth and say interesting things and no data is going to teach you how to do that. They they might give you some hints, but uh, there are obviously a lot more to, you know, being someone who, people find yeah. attractive than yeah, I just think, using yeah, data. But I think, I, I think there are all the, I think there are a lot of hints in data. Some of them you might've come naturally to, uh, but some of them, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't even kind of get too deep into this, but something like using your similarity, I think would be a data-based strategy. Uh, so there's so much bias, similarity bias. I talk about the initials, 11.3% more likely to match with someone who shares your initials, someone who goes to the same school, someone who shares your race, your religious background. Uh, I think you'd be an idiot not to take advantage of this. Uh, So I learned this in my dating life where, so I'm Jewish uh, and, but I'm I'm not religious at all. And I kind of pride myself on not caring about the religious background of a potential mate and, you know, put no, very little, little to no emphasis on the Judaism of a possible mate. And I kind of learned as the data would have told me that even if I don't care, I still should put more energy into the Jewish community because I'm getting this boost. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, if I go to a non-Jewish event and I'm a five, if I go to a Jewish event, I'm a seven, (laughs) just based on the, the similarity bias. So I think something like that, these little hacks that you can pick up in the data, I think can be very useful. Yeah, but but yeah, yeah I, I think not, if you try, you can't turn yourself into a robot. Uh, yeah, you know, then then you'd be less attractive. So yeah, I, yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to. Yeah, trying to. That's where I sort of think it goes astray. But I, I think you're right. I think I I think I agree with you on most of these things. Thinking of them as little hacks, uh, and then otherwise being a normal person and, and trying to just you know relate to people. I, I think that's I think that's great. I think that makes sense. Um, the sex data it's so weird what do you th- what do you make of this um uh 
What do you make of this, the popularity of incest? Because, you know, again, evolutionary theory, you know, it tells you it, it should not exist or it should exist to a very little, uh, very limited extent. Freud, you know, says it does exist. I, I, before I read your book, I thought, yeah, Freud is a charlatan, you know, evolutionary psychology is correct. But like some ridiculous percentage of porn searches, you know, in your book were, uh, everybody lies, were for incest. So how do you explain that? How do you understand and, that? And I mean, talk about Freud, it's women search for, Fathers. Uh, with father, daughter, and men search for mother, son. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's weird. It's, it's, it, it was one of the most striking things in the data. Uh, you know, the, you know, now some people would say that, uh, you know, porn isn't actually showing a pure desire that uh, you're it kind of because it's forbidden. There's something uh-huh. related to the forbidden that makes it more popular. Uh, this would also come up in the uh, violent porn that is very that is surprisingly popular among females, uh, which I think you know I, I would not say is an actual fantasy, but is a is a something. There's something something about the forbidden leads you in that direction. It's probably above my pay grade uh, to <laughs> to make too much sense of this data, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the women and the desire, the, um, the searches for the violent stuff. I mean, so that's like sort of coming to the mainstream. So you have like 50 shades of gray ended up being, you know, yeah. the biggest book in the world. And so you go, okay, it's brought, it's not just like some weird minority. So, you know, there's obviously some appeal here, um, to that reaches a wide, you know, variety uh, of women. So it makes sense. You could think of it, you could think of an evolutionary reason for it, I guess. I mean, you know, a strong man, a strong man would do strong things. And, you know, that, that sort of makes sense. Uh, the incest stuff, I'm just, I'm just playing armchair evolutionary psychologist and I'm just, I'm just puzzled. <laughs> I'm just puzzled by it. I, I mean, I don't know obviously evolutionary psychology can go way too far in the sexual arena. Just think of the popularity of homosexuality. Yeah, uh, yeah, which you know, I know people have tried to explain that from an evolutionary perspective, but I think those efforts seem pretty hopeless. Uh, so, uh, you know, clearly there's it's not just clearly our brains aren't just giving us fantasies that maximize our chances of passing on our genes, healthy genes. It's clearly more complicated than that. Yeah, it's 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 complicated and it's socially constructed to you know a very you know a very like much much stronger degree than I would have you know thought before reading the book. Um, and then the uh, oh the the one about the the men I mean the, this is a just good evidence. For, I mean the men in India wanting to be yeah. just India right just India uh, Pakistan a little bit too yeah okay uh, somehow with the, 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 yeah it's, it's it's a shared culture it's India and Pakistan the men want to be breastfed by the right did you ever look into like what was there like a popular news story in India of like this happening or like a movie or something that could have set this off I I I. I I'm trying. It's one of my big life regrets, and if this is one of your big life regrets, you know you've lived your life pretty well. Is that I haven't figured that one out <laughs> uh, because it is very interesting. Uh, you know, people have told me a lot of theories. It may be related to cows somehow. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone's got the cow milk. Theory. Oh, that can they not drink the cow milk? Is is that? Is I that don't it? know, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting. Certainly, very. Uh, you know, it's, it just shows the. It, that was one of my, that was one of my favorite examples in in the, in everyday lives because you know everybody otherwise was saying some some a lot of the findings are confirming things that 
have kind of come into mainstream a little bit. As you said, uh, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey has shown the violent desires and incest porn, you know, incest Freud kind of brought that on the map and racism, secret racism in the United States or closet homosexuals. They're all kind of things that people suspected maybe, but here's proof for them. But then that one was just this data can reveal something that's totally out of left field that nobody's talking about, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. That is wild. And yeah, I mean, I have a lot of, for some reason I have a lot of Indian Twitter followers and, and listeners and maybe, maybe they'll have some, some insights. So yeah, if you do, please, please let, please let us know. Um, the, uh, uh, I want to ask one question about the Raj Shetty data. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the, the findings was that kids, you know, I love this design because they're looking at people who move over time and they're looking at siblings. I mean, it's just really, really uh, smart design. And then, but one of the things you have is um, like, for example, uh, what's one thing is good for the kids is having a lot of um, uh, adults who are college graduates and, and stable families. And so is that, do we know that that is uh, effective adult, like you frame it as like sort of adult role models or norms or something? Could it be uh, peers? I mean, could it be like Judith? Yeah, I think, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I'd agree. I went maybe a little too far in interpreting that, except that uh, the, I talked about those two studies he did, which I thought were more convincing, or he and his team did, the female scientists that just growing up around adult female scientists increase your odds of being a female scientist and uh, the African-Americans who grow up in blocks with a lot of black fathers around do way better. Those two combined with the correlations. I think we started moving towards that direction though. I don't know. They're, they're just correlations. So we don't know, you know, college grads are more likely to have smarter kids and the, the kids would be smart. So I, it, it's, it's a bit of a, no, it's, it's, it's a bit of a black box because it's all only correlational analysis, but that did seem to be stronger than things like the test scores of your peers. So I did think that certainly it, it seemed like my read of the evidence was that adult role models are maybe a big factor. And, and then maybe there is the make a popular book. You got to exaggerate the point a little further than you would if you were you know, offering every caveat. Yeah. Uh, but I, no, do, I, think, I, I think you do it. Well. Yeah. I think you, I think you had a right balance. Yeah. I'm, I'm picking, I'm picking sort of my question about if I did have kids, I would put more energy into the adults. I expose them to based on the data. So, so I tried to do every piece of advice in the book with something that I either do or would do. Uh, so I, I would, if I were a parent, pay more attention to both the neighbors I was exposing my kid to and the adult role models. And if I had friends who I really wanted my kids to turn out, like I'd bring them around more, have them talk to my kids more. Cause I just thought, you know, my read of the evidence was that probably is a bigger factor than I might've thought, you know, before, uh, before this research existed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for practical, for practical reasons, I mean, it doesn't make much of a difference because like, you know, you're getting either the parents or the kids, if you know, the neighborhood is going to be the same. So practically, you know, move where there's a lot of college graduates where people have, you know, don't have broken homes. It's, it doesn't, who cares if it's, uh, if it's the adults or, or the kids. Yeah. Just plausibly. I mean, I don't remember like the adults around where I grew up. Maybe it was different where you would grow up, but I lived in like suburban America and like the adults, you know, they weren't, <laughs> they weren't a big part of my life, the adults in the neighborhood. So, and the kids obviously, uh, were, um, 
I get yeah. One more. I guess I'll ask you one more uh, question, and then I'll probably let you go. Um, one thing uh, you know that struck me from the uh, book, and it was just a small. It's a small vignette. I mean, it wasn't like a big thing, but it was like you were talking to Larry Summers. Um, and, um, you were talking about, um, you know, you were presenting him some data and he looked at it and, you know, he believed it. And then, you know, you were, you were something, you said, you know, you said something like, um, he basically, uh, just assumed that, you know, if there was, you know, like whatever finding that I had, that people in the hedge funds had, had already figured it out. That, that, that's a little exaggeration. If I wrote that, I maybe. first of all, Larry Summers, like kind of took me under his wing after I got rejected from the academic market. That, that story got told maybe a little bit wrong that, uh, he was, he was trying to kind of help me. And one of the things was possibly to, uh, to, that we could write a paper, write a paper on using this data for finance. And that, that would be more well received than my paper on racism and Obama. So it's a little, maybe a little over dramatized for narrative effect. Uh, I, I, di- I, that said, I did think that I, I, I thought that his respect for hedge fund people did strike me as noticeably kind of changing your prior of how the world works. Uh, you know, he has had some experience in the world. He seemed very, uh, very respectful. I think I said the reason I originally was able to do all these Google search analyses that nobody else could do was I figured out a way to hack around Google trends system to get better data. Uh, and I, it was this kind of, you know, I guess, clever trick that, uh, Google wasn't presenting, data if it didn't get above a privacy threshold. And I realized you could just do the word you're looking for and do the word you're looking for or do, do the word, another word and that does get above the threshold and another world plus your word and then just subtract the two. But I had to download 5,000 5, samples and build an econometric model to actually get the data to work. So it's a little complicated. Not, I, 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 uh, told uh larry summers about this and he's <laughs> he's like I, I i very very clever he's very impressed and then i just asked him do you think renaissance technologies would have yeah. figured this out he goes of course they would have figured that out and that was just it was kind of it was interesting i'm just like oh that's kind of interesting because that could that counts as i think extremely clever in academia to the point that nobody else in academia had come up with it or come uh, close to coming up with that or thought it, it was just, it was off the charts, clever for academia. But it, according to my read of Larry Summers response to it, it doesn't count. It, it counts as obvious in hedge fund world. That made me think that the talent in hedge funds is just way higher than the talent in academia. Which is yeah. Very yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think me and you, both of us, we sort of, uh, we started off wanting to be, um, academics. And I think like, you know, I was uh, the summer's, uh, uh, story, even the way you tell it, I mean, it's still, it's still, you know, I appreciate that clarification. It's still very interesting. Um, and so I was heading in this direction, uh, anyway, but like, I think like, you know, like 10 years ago, like before I, you know, started in academia, I would have thought like, okay, you want the person who knows most about finance, you go to a finance professor, you want the person who knows most about the economy, you go to an economics professor, psychologist you go to the psychology professor and then i came to realize that like probably not i mean there's you know there's a lot of you know there's a lot of data out there in the world and there's a lot of ways to analyze data and like you know there the payoffs for being right in other fields is like much higher than being right in academia often there's no payout to being right it's just you know it's just uh convincing other people and sometimes the research agenda can sort of uh go off in strange or you know uh directions that don't make a, i think don't make a lot of sense or don't explain much about the world and you know just reading that story it was like 
um, it was like, are, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a, like, a, are, are we, are we nerds like who are not in hedge funds? Are we just playing in a little sandbox and like the adults are out there doing the, you know, doing the real work. It just, it just gave me a little bit of, a little bit of that when I heard it. Did, did you have like a sort of a, a personal reaction to that? I, I had a similar response to you and uh, yeah, I think I, I, I would say I've, so I, I now do a fair amount of consulting. I've done some, I have done over the years, a fair amount of consulting for hedge funds. And I would say it has to some degree confirmed that. I don't think that, I think the people in academia are incredibly smart. So my advisors or, you know, the, profe- the, uh, the, the, the uh, all the professors, they have a talent. Like I think the people at the top of hedge funds maybe couldn't climb to the top of academia. But I also think the people at academia wouldn't be as good at understanding like how to build a successful hedge fund or there are many fund there. There's a very different skill. That's very, very, that's off the charts at the top of the business world that it's not exactly the same as academia, but it does feel like there's something a little more real about it. That it's because there's kind of this need for practicality. There is a way of uh, academia. You kind of end up eventually playing almost without, without fail, you play these games of what's acceptable evidence. And uh, you, I think even if you start, someone starts very bright, they're eventually going to be maybe a little bit more focused on, uh, on whether the evidence gets, whether the evidence counts by the standards of the game, rather than whether the evidence is actually true that I think you see less of in, in the in the business world, but the business world also has its own limitations. It's just they're just different worlds. Uh, but but that was yeah. When something counts as off the charts clever in academia, but would be considered obvious in hedge funds, I did have that response. That that was like an I I, I did have that exact same response. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you saw it. Yeah. Sort of a this uh, in a similar uh, way. Yeah. I mean, it's not just that they're you know it's like there's a you know the the I mean the academia it's like yeah all all sort of fields and you know human endeavors have like arbitrary nonsense and like hoops you have to jump to and things that are not necessarily you know conducive to figuring out truth it just it, you know it's an incentive thing in, in academia you know I remember like when I got to grad school like one of the most common you know I present a paper and then one of the most common is like oh did you cite Smith Green and Johnson and I'm like you know no and it's like okay well go back and cite Smith Green and Johnson and I'm like okay I did that it didn't get me any closer to finding truth it's like you know it, it, it was just like little things like that I saw the you know you have to be smart to remember to cite Smith Johnson and put them in the right place and put them in grammatical sentences yes but you're optimized for doing something different than somebody who's running a business or running a hedge funder uh, or whatever. So yeah, they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're both great books. Um, I recommend everyone. I, I don't want people to think that like, because I picked like the three things that I thought the data, you know, what didn't necessarily follow uh, the conclusion that I didn't like the books because I thought the books were great. And I was just focusing on the things that I personally wanted to know and I wanted to follow up on. So I highly recommend them. I think they're very useful. And I, um, is there anything, uh, you're working on now that you want to talk about Seth or are you just focus on promoting this book? Uh, no, I don't know. I, I'm always doing a little bit of everything. So, uh, I don't know my next, like, I don't know if I'm going to write, I probably will write another book. I don't, I would have no idea what it's going to be. So. Okay. To- 
Well, it's been great talking to you. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Seth. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Richard. <laughs>